Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stonepages Archeo News Podcast, episode number 270. We have a fine set of stories lined up for you guys today. And, of course, as always, we've collected the stories from various sources around the web, and you can find all the sources on our website at news.stonepages.com, and we also have some nice clickable links for you guys to be able to follow the stories to the main sources. For today's podcast, we have Australian wildfires revealing ancient aqueducts built by the Aborigines people, and we've got the orientation of Neolithic houses being shown through radiocarbon dating. Following that, some Saturday news about site destruction in Wales. And we have two Neolithic groups in Spain actually being shown to have various isotopic differences. Then we have a new date for the start of Homo erectus and its expansion into the rest of the world. After that, Neanderthals are actually better swimmers than we previously thought. Next, somebody did put a ring on it in Denmark, in fact, as we have a nice piece of anther ring found on Donut Fensta. And finally, we have the source of all good things, the Chinese beer and how it was manufactured throughout ancient China. Now, without further ado, let's get to today's podcast. And now for some happy news, and also the first story of today's podcast surrounding the Australian wildfires and how they have revealed an ancient agricultural system. While there has been a lot of terrible news surrounding the Australian wildfires, they have revealed an ancient agricultural system built by the indigenous people and is thought to date back to around 4600 BCE. The Bujibim cultural landscape is situated southwest of Victoria and it features an elaborate series of stone-lined channels and pools that were set up by the local people to harvest eels. As of 2019, the site was added to the UNESCO World Heritage List. Some parts of the elaborate system are also thought to have included uh, stone dwellings and date to around 6,600 years ago. However, after the bushfire that was started back in December, extra sites were spotted that were previously hidden under the vegetation and these sites are also believed to be part of the agricultural system. I apologize ahead of time for how I'm pronounced this, but the Guntage Mirroring Traditional Owners Aboriginal Corporation Manager, Dennis Rose, said he was unconcerned about how the fire would have affected the system when it first broke out. He also added, There have certainly been many fires here in the thousands of years prior. Our major concern was the effect after the fire, and we've still got some work to do there. A new survey will take place in light of the discovery, with archaeologists working alongside indigenous rangers as well as aerial photography using specialized software. Now, ladies and gentlemen, for our second story of today's podcast, we have one about Neolithic houses and their orientations finally being solved. Human behavior is influenced by many things, much of which remains unconscious to us. One of these phenomenon is known as pseudo-neglect, and it is well known among perception psychologists. Soda neglect refers to the observation that healthy people prefer their left visual field to their right and therefore divide a line regularly left of center. This idea has been used now to show uh, how the deviation is visible in the prehistoric past. Through a Slovak German research team, uh, they have been investigating the alignment of early Neolithic houses in Central and Eastern Europe. Scientists of the Collaborative Research Center, the CRC of Kiel University, CAU, and the Slovakian Academy of Sciences, uh, no shortening of that name whatsoever, they were able to prove that the orientation of newly built houses deviated by a small amount from that of existing buildings, and that this deviation was regularly counterclockwise. One of the archaeologists, Dr. Nils Müller-Schiesel, who coordinated the study within the CRC, said, 
Researchers have long assumed that early Neolithic houses stood for about a generation, i.e. 30 to 40 years, and that new houses had to be built next to the existing ones at regular intervals. By means of age determination using the radiocarbon method, we can now show that the new construction was associated with a barely perceptible rotation of the house axis counterclockwise. We see soda neglect as the most likely cause of this. Müller-Schiesel also added, In recent years, we have discovered hundreds of early Neolithic houses in our field of work in southwestern Slovakia using geophysical prospecting methods. Excavating all these houses is neither possible nor desirable for reasons of monument conservation. The possibility of using soda neglect to bring houses into a relative sequence without excavation and thus to break down the settlement activity of an entire small region raises our research to a completely new level. Absolute dating using scientific methods must, of course, confirm the basic trend in every case. The study also refers to comparable archaeological observations at other places and times. This shows that similar changes in orientation also seem to apply to even more recent prehistoric periods. From a purely archaeological perspective, this is quite interesting. However, we do then have the problem of houses and workhouses. For example, in Denmark, on the excavations that I'm on, when we have houses that face east-west, which they actually normally do, and that is a trend that continues to the Middle Ages, we generally see these as the main living quarters of the family, and that any houses that are turned north-south, uh, they're usually work buildings, either for stables or other storage areas. Though this study is quite interesting, and it's probably something I'm going to bring into the field, though sadly I don't believe we have the preservation in Denmark to apply these methods here. For our next story, we have a sad story, namely damage to a prehistoric burial mound in Wales. I'm sorry if I sound a bit flat, I'm just going to read this as is to get the most information out of it. Welsh police are investigating appalling damage at a Bronze Age burial mound which dates back to 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. Gwent Police rural crime team said that the destruction was caused by off-road vehicles and said immediate prevention measures were being put in place. The Wilton Trust shared pictures of its Wentwood site near Newport where tire tracks covered the monument. Site manager Rob Davies said damage has been an ongoing problem and a feature that is around 3,000 to 4,000 years old has been damaged within a few minutes. This is a Bronze Age burial mound, a scheduled ancient monument, and the damage caused is therefore a criminal offense. Mr. Davies went on to add, There has unfortunately been an ongoing problem with damage to this and similar features within Wentwood. The trust has been spending around £1,500 a year trying to keep vehicles away from them, and following this damage, we will be undertaking further work. The Woodland Trust said that Wentwood forms part of the largest block of ancient woodlands in Wales, with a number of Bronze Age burial mounds on its ridge tops. Of course, uh, I don't know as of current standing whether they have found the culprits yet. If uh, they have, good on you. If they haven't, uh, anybody who saw or heard anything, I'm sure you can uh, contact the uh, local uh, rural crime team. I'm sure they'd be happy for all of the uh, help that you can give. For our next story, we have a very scientific study, namely that the two megalithic cultures that were found in Spain a few years ago were actually separate groups. The team of researchers in question are from the UK, Belgium, and Spain, and they have found evidence that two groups of people in the late Neolithic Europe, living approximately 5,500 years ago, belong to two distinct communities. This is quite different to the original study that was done several years ago. Here, scientists that were studying the remains of two groups of late Neolithic people living within 4 to 6 kilometers of one another in the region known as Rioja Alavesa in Spain 
concluded that the two groups were actually just one group, and they were suggesting that the distance between the two groups was due to status and wealth. This conclusion was reached mainly due to the burial practices of the people. Namely, that there were these people living in the foothills, they were using the caves for burials, while those that were living in the valley created the megalithic grave sites. The new study, however, suggests that the researchers were wrong in the original study and that the two groups were actually separate communities. The new work involved studying the molars of 27 adults who had been buried in the caves and graves, or rather, not just the molars, but specifically the isotopes in the teeth. Teeth are quite unique because unlike bones, they do not change their isotope signals as a person ages. This allows for tracking the lifestyle of the person under study, particularly the foods that they ate, quite like the equipe that was uh, found to be possibly to be German a few years ago. However, this has apparently changed since then. Um, I'm not sure on that one yet. I'll have to figure out for uh, a later time. Through this study, the researchers found several differences in the diet. The people who lived in the megalithic graves ate more plants than those who were buried in the caves, particularly when they were children. On the other hand, the people in the foothills ate a lot more meat. Those living in the valley also had more cavities due to a very uh, carbohydrate-rich diet. And the children who were growing up in the cave community had a lot more calcium in the teeth, suggesting that they were weaned at a later age. When you compare all of this information, the evidence suggests that the people in the groups lived apart for most, if not all, their lives, making them two separate entities. Researchers have also been suggesting that the close proximity likely meant that the two people were actually, you know, collaborating quite regularly. However, it is also noted that there was probably occasional violence between these two groups, but not enough to build any form of protective barriers, though whether or not the natural environment around the settlements may have acted as the barrier is uncertain at this point. So for our next story, we have a bit of a surprise, namely Homo erectus may not have evolved in Asia. Due to its placement, Indonesia is hugely important for understanding the human migration and settlement patterns in Asia during the early Pleistocene period. This is a period that ended around 780,000 years ago. According to the new research, Homo erectus reached the Indonesian island of Java around about 1,400 kilometers west-northwest of Darwin, Australia, sometime between 1.3 and 1.5 million years ago. This would be 300,000 to 500,000 years later than previously estimated. This revised time frame may settle a long-standing debate about the geographical origin of the species. Now, since 1936, over 100 different hominin fossils have been recorded from the thick sedimentary layers in a large rocallic dome on the island of Java. However, the complex geology has prevented anyone from establishing an accepted chronology. As we talked about in the previous podcast, uh, previous attempts to date the volcanic deposits relied solely on argon-argon dating of materials uh, from the extracted pumice. However, new research has been done by Shuji Matsura of Japan's National Museum of Nature and Science with his colleagues, and they relied on two different techniques, uranium-lead dating and fission track dating. These two methods would help examine the sediments in and around which the fossils were found. These new dates indicate an arrival of Homo erectus to the region around 1.3 million years ago, but no earlier than 1.45 million years ago. Later physical changes then could have been the result of a major global cooling trend around 1.2 million years ago, or the arrival of a separate population to the region when the sea levels dropped and the dry land connected the archipelago. On a final note, archaeological evidence suggests that Homo erectus emerged in Africa. Coincidentally, these new dates were very recently published for the extinction of Homo erectus both in Indonesia and the world. 
Homo habilis then may likely have emerged in Asia many hundreds of thousands of years later as a sister species to the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. Having mentioned Neanderthals in the last story, let's uh, take another look at them, but a little bit closer to my home anyways. Namely, also answering the question whether or not they could swim and dive. Now, over 100,000 years ago, the Neanderthals at the Grotta dei Cavalli, the Cave of Horses, in what is now the northwestern tip of Sicily, a group of Neanderthals made tools from clamshells. This is one of only three sites in the world where strong evidence has been found of a systematic shell scraper manufactured by the Neanderthals, one of these being the Grotta dei Moscarini, the Cave of Gnats, which is a large seaside cave at the base of a cliff on the tip of Italy's boot heel about 500 kilometers northeast. These tools were found throughout multiple archaeological layers dating from around 106 to 74,000 years ago, though they weren't evenly distributed throughout the Neanderthal-associated sequence. Now, Neanderthals are known to have made stone tools, but their shell-based toolmaking is less well-known. In 1949, archaeologists found 171 shell tools at Moscarini, and another 136 were separately found at Cavalli. And much smaller numbers in other Neanderthal sites, such as Kalamakia Cave in Greece, have also been found. Now, the assumption has always been that the caves were picked up on the beach by Neanderthals, but it seems to be that between a fifth and a quarter of the specimens found at the two sites in Italy seems to be have been collected alive. All of these were made from smooth clam, uh, Calistation, and the shells are almost evenly thin from the bulge of the half shell to its edge. The edges were shaped with stone hammers, and experiments demonstrate that unlike stones, the cutting edges of the shells can be retouched two to three times without changing the cutting angle. Studies show that while the Neanderthals preferred meat, they also did catch fish in shallow freshwater and ate shellfish. Some of the Neanderthals around 115,000 years ago in what is now Spain bored holes into shells and colored them to decorate and use them as, I'm guessing, jewelry, amongst other things. Eric Trinkhaus, who comes from Washington University in St. Louis, U.S., reported that there is evidence of surface ears in Neanderthal skulls. These are bony growths in the ear canal that are prevalent among humans who swim in cold water. More interesting is that surface ears seem to have become less common in upper Paleolithic Neanderthal communities, although there are signs of marine use still uh, remaining in these eras. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the second to last story of today's podcast, namely a unique Stone Age ring made from deer antler discovered in Denmark. A prehistoric ring made of deer antler was discovered at a Neolithic site in Denmark, which has been hidden for millennia having been swallowed by the sea thousands of years ago. The find was discovered at an archaeological site in Lodden, Denmark's fourth largest island, amidst several other objects forged from organic material like wood and bone, including a T-shaped antler axe. The ring is broken, but otherwise perfectly preserved, according to researchers. The object is 2.4 centimeters, 0.95 inches in diameter, making it large enough to fit a man's finger. While it is finely polished, it contains only microscopic scratches, while the inside still displays traces of the original carving. Its relative pristine condition suggests it was barely worn or had been broken in the manufacturing process, according to the researchers. The authors of the study were not able to date the object directly and instead based the age of the ring on objects located nearby. However, the tests on artifacts found near the ring suggest it was made 5,500 to 6,300 years ago, which would be the early Neolithic period, 
3900 to 1700 BCE. Further testing on the find identified the material, the bone of an elk, alcas alcas or red deer, servus elapse. And it suggested it came from the antler of the red deer, the more local of the two species. The elk vanished from the area in the response to rising sea levels, and that would suggest the ring or the antler it was made from had been imported. The proliferation of rings made from bone or other osseous material, like antler, began in the Anatolian Neolithic in what is now the Middle East. It then expanded, gaining popularity in southern and central Europe. However, according to the study's authors, the ring discovered at Sultum is only the second that has been found and can be traced to the early Neolithic period in Denmark. It is not known why this type of jewelry is so uncommon in Denmark. One suggestion could be that it is a matter of preservation and the objects of this kind have not survived. The first ring was discovered at a site near Jutland in central Denmark and it is considerably smaller, suggesting it belonged to a woman or a child. A second thing differentiating it from the one found at Sultum is its material. Testing on this ring suggests it was made from a wild boar tusk. The researchers put forward the idea that there may have been two separate ring manufacturing processes, one that involved anthers or bones and was favored in the east, and one that involved tusks and was favored in the west. For the final story of today's podcast, we have a problem that is just as relevant then as it is now. The ancient Chinese people experimenting with different methods of making beer. Studies have shown that ancient Chinese people were working hard to create the perfect recipe for making beer 6,000 years ago. There have been nine Neolithic amphorae shards used for transporting beer, wine, and grain that were studied by researchers at Stanford University. They found remnants of prehistoric beer as well as the evidence of two clear methods using to brew the alcohol. The methods were carried out separately and could have been combined to make different varieties of alcohol. One method employed by the Yangshao people in Dangsheng was to use malts made of sprouted millet, grass seeds, and rice to produce low-alcohol drinks, whereas the other one made of ku, multi grass, and grains to produce stronger drinks. Yangshao people may have been experimenting with various methods to find the best way for making alcohol, or for brewing multiple types of alcohol for different purposes, according to Dr. Liu Li, who writes for the study. Millennia later, the two techniques were recorded into literature with the booze made from the cereal known as Li alcohol, while the higher concentration drink was dubbed Jiu. And forays were produced in huge numbers in Neolithic China and were manufactured to be up to three feet or one meter tall. Dr. Liu believes that this growing popularity may be the result of Yang Xiao's cultures, as it has served a core role in their own culture. The researchers believe that this may be because it was used to produce the alcohol. The researchers write in their paper, it is notable that the size of amphora increased over time with many measuring nearly one meter in height during the Miyajugo phase around 6,000 years ago, suggesting a growing demand for alcohol, probably for communal drinking rituals. And with that final story, that is it for today's podcast. I gotta say that while the Australian one uh, about the aqueducts is quite sad due to the events happening down there. It is also fascinating to see how much information we can get out of destruction. If you're still interested in more archaeological news, I suggest you go to news.stonepages.com. There you'll find the news that we didn't cover in today's podcast, and there are actually quite a lot and some quite interesting ones. The news have, of course, been selected from various sites around the web, and we, of course, include all the sources in our news, and now with easy clickable links so you can find the original source and look it all through. But without further ado, I would like to say have a happy March. I'm finishing up this recording on March 1st, actually, 
and I cannot wait to see you guys until next time. Bye-bye.